Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the Book of Romans with James Jordan, and here Jim's going to have a bit of a sidebar conversation on Romans 4 and Jewish perversions of the law. Right now, we are still plugging our Theopolis app. If you have not downloaded our app yet, you can find it in the App Store. It is available for both Apple and Android, and we are adding new content to the app every week. So we encourage you to go download it and enjoy the content that we are putting out over there. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Jewish perversions of the law. The book of Romans is concerned, first of all, with the church. It is concerned with the unification of Jew and Gentile into one church. That's the theme of Romans. The theme of Romans is not justification by faith. Justification by faith is an argument that Paul adduces to insist that Jew and Gentile are both saved the same way and that they're going to be put together into one body now in Christ. If you're in Christ, there can't be any distinctions. In the Old Covenant, people were nearer to God or not as near to God. They had special callings. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, you can't get any closer to God than being in Christ. And Paul in Galatians and other places tears apart anybody who has a two-stage Christianity. Some people are Christians in one degree and some have the second blessing. Some have been confirmed by the bishop. And others are ordinary Christians. Some of them have gotten the gift to tongues, and others are ordinary Christians. Some people have had the second blessing, and others are ordinary Christians. Paul says that is the doctrine of demons. You're in Christ or you're not in Christ, and that's it. You can grow in Christ, you can sin and grieve the Spirit, but you're either in Christ or you're not. There are no degrees in the New Covenant. You know, right off the bat you can say, well, if that's true, and since it is true, there can't be a distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore in Christ. And that's really Paul's argument in a number of places in the New Testament, like Ephesians and Galatians. Romans, he lays it out in far more detail. And because of that, we can't look at all the detail in Romans. But we need to get the overall thrust of the book. And he starts off saying the gospel is to the Jew first and to the Greek. He talks about both Jew and Greek were saved in the Old Testament by faith in God, by pursuing righteousness. Both Jew and Gentile stand under the condemnation of God because of original sin. Everybody deserves to go to hell because of original sin. But the Holy Spirit worked among both Jews and Gentiles to cause them to trust in God in anticipation of the blood of Christ. He is going to argue in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham is the father both of the circumcised and of the uncircumcised God-fearing Gentiles in the Old Testament. And we'll see that. He's going to go on in chapter 5 and say that sin was caused by Adam, and so it affects everybody, and Jesus is the new Adam, and so his salvation is for everybody. And then he's going to talk throughout all of this about how the law fits in, because the law was distinctive for Israel, and the question is, how does the law link in with this? Then in chapters 9 through 11, he's going to talk about the call of Israel, and he's going to talk about how the Gentiles are now put into the same olive tree with Israel, and he's going to talk about how there is a future conversion of Israel back into the olive tree, which, if we get to it, I will try to show you is a prediction of events that happened just before the destruction of Jerusalem and are long since past as far as we're concerned. 
and that after A.D. 70, the Jews are just like anybody else. The Bible says all nations are going to come into the kingdom, so the Jews eventually will. But the specific thing in Romans 9 to 11 has to do with this knitting together of Jew and Gentile during the 40 years between A.D. 30 and 70. And then he gets to the practical part of the book, and he tells us all to one another, one another. And then in chapter 15, he deals with the food laws and circumcision and Sabbaths, the things that were barriers between Jew and Gentile, and he talks about how to take those barriers down. So the whole book has to do with the formation of the church as the new body in Christ and the unification of Jew and Gentile into that one body. Now, the barrier between unification of Jew and Gentile, as far as the Jews were concerned, was the law. They said, we've been given the law and that makes us special. And so Paul has to spend a whole lot of time dealing with the law, what it meant, what it didn't mean, how the Jews have perverted it, and how Paul seeks to restore its original meaning. Paul never says the law is gone. In fact, his whole argument is the law was never intended to be used the way the Jews were using it. And as far as Christians are concerned, the law has the same wonderful function for us that it had for Israel. It shows us what's right and wrong. It shows us how to live. It reminds us when we sin. And there's no change as far as the law is concerned in terms of its basic function. But Israel had perverted the meaning of the law. So what I want us to do right now is we probably won't go into Romans at all in this hour. We've got to lay some foundations here so that we can understand what Paul is writing to. Because Paul is writing to people who know the whole Old Testament and who have an awareness of what Jesus said. And we need to remind ourselves of all that or else what Paul writes is going to be hard to follow. It's going to be hard to follow anyway. I mean, this is, after all, Paul. First of all, then, God called Israel, the Hebrews, Abraham, Israel, which was their new name in the Mosaic Covenant, the Jews, which was their new name in the Restoration Covenant. God called those people to service and to a special mission in the world. He did not call them to be his only saved people, and everybody on the outside was unsaved. We've seen this. There are saved God-fearing Gentiles all over the Old Testament. And constantly, we see that Israel is supposed to minister to them. And we see it again in the New Testament. And God condemns Peter when Peter won't go to Cornelius' house. Peter says, well, you know, we're not supposed to go into a Gentile house. And God says, who told you that? That's not in the law. Of course you should go to a Gentile house. You should be ministering to Gentiles in every way imaginable. So he rebukes Peter, and Peter goes to Cornelius and baptizes him and all the rest. Israel was called to service and mission. And the Torah, which is the five books of Moses, the law, and when Paul writes about the law, he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments or the legislative parts of the Torah. He's talking about Genesis through Deuteronomy, and in a larger way, the whole Old Testament. But the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, was given to Israel as a gift for the nations. It wasn't given to Israel so that they could have it. It was a gift to be given away. It's the same thing as what we're told in the New Testament. God gives to some the gift of apostleship and to some the gift of administration and to some the gift of foreign languages and to some the gift of helps. Why are these gifts given? To be given away. They're not given to be held on to. What good is that? We're supposed to one another one another, right? And so the Torah was given to Israel as a gift to the nations. 
They were supposed to minister this word of God to all the nations round about. They tended not to do it. Sometimes they did. The Holy Spirit came upon Samson, and Samson went and offered God to the Philistines by offering marriage to the Philistine girl if she would convert. God came to Jonah and said, go preach to Nineveh, and Jonah said, I don't want to do that. Well, he was supposed to. He was supposed to take the Torah to the nations. Israel was also set apart. The Torah was given to Israel not just so they could give it away to the 70 nations of the world, but to show them how to conduct a sacrificial ministry on behalf of the nations. The other nations weren't as near to God as Israel was. The other nations didn't have the tabernacle and the temple in their midst. They didn't have the special altar. They didn't have the Shekinah glory burning in the center of their kingdom. And so they needed the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews, to minister for them. Just as the Israelites could not go into the holy place, but needed the priests to minister to them, so the nations needed Israel to minister to them. What would it have been like if the priests had said, we have the really good law and you Israelites don't, and we're going to stay here in the temple all the time, and we're not going to help you all at all? That would have been kind of perverse. The priests were supposed to teach the people. The priests were supposed to be able to read. Were most people in the ancient world able to read? What do you girls think down here? You think that people in the, in the ancient world could read? No, they couldn't read because there were almost no books. The only books they had were copied out by hand. And so most people didn't know how to read. They didn't need to. They couldn't afford to buy any books anyway. Books were really expensive back in those days. So only a few people could read, and the priests were the ones who were set aside to make sure that they could read. And they could teach the Torah to the people. And they could offer the sacrifices on behalf of the people. Well, in exactly the same way, Israel was supposed to teach the Torah to the nations and offer sacrifices on behalf of the nations. At the Feast of Tabernacles, for instance, which is the great feast of ingathering and speaks of the ingathering of the Gentiles, 70 bulls were offered for the 70 nations of the world. But there was one other aspect of the Torah, the law, and that is it was a special discipline for the priestly people. Each circle of priests had a special discipline that it was supposed to follow. The priests in Israel had special disciplines to help them be priests. These were just things to keep them in shape because they were the Marines. The priests were the first ones in. So they were Marines and they had to be kept tough. Now listen to some of the special rules for the priests. And this didn't apply to every Israelite. These were rules for the priests so that they would be in shape before God. Leviticus 21. Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people, except for his relatives who were nearest him, his mother and his father and his son and his daughter and his brother, and also his virgin sister who is near him because she has no husband. For her he may defile himself. He shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people and so profane himself. Now, what does that mean? It means that they're not allowed to mourn. If a priest had a real good friend or a brother-in-law who died, he could grieve personally, but he was not allowed to put sackcloth on and dump ashes on his head and go around mourning for a week. He was not allowed to do that. He could only do that for those who were very near to him, father, son, daughter, brother, 
Moreover, it says, the priests are not allowed to make any baldness on their heads, nor shave off the edges of the beard, nor make any cuts in their flesh. So you couldn't wear a tattoo if you were a priest. Verse 7, they shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God. So the priests were required to marry a virgin. If a girl had made a mistake early in her life, she could marry somebody else. That was great. If she'd been like Rahab the harlot and had repented, Rahab married one of the leading men of the tribe of Judah and was an ancestor of Boaz and of David and of Jesus. But a priest could not marry Rahab, nor was a priest allowed to marry a woman who was divorced. Other people could. There was divorce in Israel. Divorce is not always wrong. There are occasions when it's necessary. But the priest was not allowed to do that. Verse 9, also the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father, and she shall be burned with fire. <laughs> well, now, an ordinary Israelite girl, if she played the harlot in her father's house, she would be put to death. But it says here, the daughter of a priest, if she plays the harlot in her father's house, she's to be put to death and then her body is to be burned up with fire. They didn't burn her alive now. That's not what it says. But she's to be burned up by fire. And that's ceremonial. Now, those were the rules for the ordinary priests, the Marines. But how about the Green Berets? How about the Navy SEALs? The guys who were the best of the best. In other words, the high priest. He had even more special rules to keep him in shape. Verse 10, the priest who is the highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head or tear his clothes, nor shall he approach any dead person nor defile himself, even for his father or his mother. So if the high priest's father or mother died, he was not allowed to go into public mourning at all. If the body was lying in state, he was not allowed to go into the room where it was and see it because you would be defiled if you were in the same room with a corpse. That's Numbers 19. Verse 13, he shall take a wife in his virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or one who is profaned by harlotry he may not take. But he must marry a virgin. Now, the ordinary priest could marry a widow, but the high priest couldn't even marry a widow. He had to marry a virgin. And then there are other rules. Verses 17, no one among your seed throughout your generation who has a defect shall offer the bread of his God. No one who has a defect shall have access. A blind man or a lame man or one who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb, a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf, one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed stones. No man among the descendants of Aaron, the priest who has a defect, is to come near and offer the bread of God, the sacrifices of God. He may eat of it outside the holy place, but he's not to go in and be a priest. Now, an ordinary Israelite who had a defect could draw near and offer sacrifice. But if a priest had a withered arm or was blind or lame, he was not allowed to offer sacrifice. Now, I'll give you a clue as to the Gospels. The healings that Jesus does in the Gospels are not random healings. All of those healings in the gospel are designed to restore Israel as a nation of priests. The specific things that Jesus heals are the specific things listed in Leviticus that keep people from the altar. Jesus does not go around lengthening legs. He does not go around curing cancer. He doesn't cure plague or yellow fever. He heals eyes, withered arms, dead people, all the things that specifically are listed as keeping you from the altar. 
And those miracles are all designed to restore Israel as a nation of priests. Well, what am I saying here? I'm saying that the food laws that God gave to Israel back in Leviticus are the same thing. They were not designed to say Israel is special and wonderful. They were a discipline because Israel was God's army. And that's all. It wasn't designed to keep them apart from the nations, but to keep them in shape so they could minister to the nations. Now, there's an analogy to this, and I want us to consider it. And if you have your swords, you might just cut them open to Numbers chapter 6. Because any Israelite who wanted to could take a temporary vow of special priestly service to God, which is called the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow is a temporary vow of service, is a picture of the entire nation of Israel in her entire history. The taking of the Nazarite vow is equivalent to Abraham being called in the first place, and the ending of the Nazarite vow is equivalent to Jesus' crucifixion on the cross and the end of Israel's special ministry. So the Nazarite in his work is a microcosm of the history of Israel as a whole. So consider what it says here in number six. Again, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to Yahweh, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or beer. A strong drink is beer. We don't think they had distilled spirits in the ancient world, but we know they had brew. So he shall abstain from wine and brewski. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or brew. Neither shall he drink any grape juice or eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that's produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled, which he separated himself to Yahweh. He shall let the locks of hair on his head grow long. All the days of his separation to Yahweh, he shall not go near a dead person. He's like the high priest. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or his mother or his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to Yahweh. Now, if a man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his dedicated head, then he shall shave his head on the day he becomes clean. He shall shave it on the seventh day. In other words, the Nazarites, being real careful not to get near a dead body, but he happens to be sitting in a room talking to a friend, and the friend all of a sudden just keels over dead. Well, now he's defiled. He's in the same room with the dead body, so he's going to have to shave his head. And verse 10 says, On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves and two young pigeons, or two young pigeons, to the priest, to the doorway of the tent of meeting, the priest shall offer one as a sin offering, the other as an ascension offering, and make atonement to him concerning his sin because of the dead person. And on that same day, he shall reconsecrate his head and dedicate to Yahweh his days as a Nazarite again. And he shall bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering, but the former days shall be invalid because his separation had been defiled. And then it talks about how you end your Nazarite vow. And verse 18 the Nazarite shall shave his dedicated head at the doorway of the tent of meeting and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire that's under the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall take the ram's shoulder when it's boiled in one unleavened cake out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his separated head. And then the priest shall wave them as a wave offering and so forth and so on now. This dedicated head stuff, you see, is the opposite of having your head crushed. So it means special service to God. 
Now, what sense would it make for a Nazarite who's got his hair growing long and who's under this vow to go around being proud of it? The whole point of taking the vow was to do some act of service, not to make yourself better than anybody else. And separating from beer, wine, and grace was a discipline to help you perform that service. And that's what the food laws for Israel were. The food laws in Israel separated them from some of the best stuff there is, like shrimp and pork. That's good food, not bad food. It's rich food. And they were separated from that to keep them tough. Okay? Now, that's what the law was given to Israel for. It was given so that they could give it to the nations, so that they could sacrifice on behalf of the nations, and to keep them kind of tough so that they could carry out that work. The whole point of it was that they were called to serve, not called to be better than everybody else. They were not the only saved people. The law was never given to say, you're saved, you're the only saved people, so you get the law. And the law certainly wasn't given as a way of being saved or maintaining your salvation. The law didn't have anything to do with being saved and maintaining your salvation. The law had to do with service. They were saved and maintained their salvation through faith alone. And that's Paul's whole argument. But now the Jews had changed the purpose of the law. And when did this really happen? Well, this is the part of Bible history that we don't know much about. And so that's why I have to take this lecture to fill you in on it, because it's background to Paul and the Gospels. And if we don't know this part of history, then you can get a lot out of the Gospels and the Epistles, but you won't get this stuff. <laughs> this part of the law of the Gospels and the Epistles will be obscure to you. So we need to fill in some history here. You can't understand David unless you understand the period of the Judges that comes before. And you can't understand the Gospels unless you understand the period of the Maccabees that came before especially what the Bible says about the period of the Maccabees. So let's consider that. Maccabees. Everybody say Maccabees. Maccabees. Okay. M-A-C-C-A-B-E-E-S. After the restoration from the exile, remember that God set up two special people in the world. The Jews, who were going to be priests of the nations, and the Doberman empires. And that's Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And the Doberman empires, really the cherubim empires, were supposed to keep their fangs and their flaming swords to defend the people of God. And then there were all the rest of the Gentiles out there. So in the New Testament, these are the Jews and Greeks. When Paul talks about Jews and Greeks, that's what he's talking about. When he talks about Jews and Gentiles, he's talking about Israel and everybody else. But when he talks about Jews and Greeks, he's talking about the Jews and then the specific guardian empire. Well, if we read the book of Zechariah and the book of Ezekiel, we will see God setting up the new restoration covenant. Zechariah goes to sleep one night and he gets eight visions during the night. And right at midnight, right at Passover time, Zechariah sees God take away all the sins of the nation. And then he sees God pour the Spirit out on Israel. And when Zechariah gets up in the morning, he tells everybody God has taken away our sins and he's renewed the covenant. And he takes the crown off the head of the king and he puts it on the high priest and says, from now on, till Jesus comes, the high priest will be the ruler of Israel. The high priest will be the prince of Israel. Meanwhile, Ezekiel 
has given all the description of what the new restoration covenant is going to be like in Ezekiel 40 through 48, which is the description of the restoration temple. Now, a lot of people think that those last chapters of Ezekiel are describing the new covenant or even the millennial temple, if they believe in a millennium. But those people are wrong because it's describing the situation after the exile. And God tells Ezekiel in chapter 44, verse 15, that from now on, the high priest has to be from the family of Zadok. I know that's drawing a blank, but up until this time, the high priest had to be a descendant of Aaron down through Eleazar or Ithamar. But in the days of David and Solomon, one of the descendants of Eleazar, whose name was Zadok, became the high priest. I think I'm right. And what Ezekiel says is, from now on, the high priests have to be Zadokites. God tells Ezekiel that. And Ezekiel gives a bunch of other rules, and so does Nehemiah and Ezra to set up the restoration covenant and how it's different. But this is the main point here. And I'm mentioning this for a very specific reason. Okay, the covenant's been restored. We've got the new restoration covenant. We've got a Zadokite high priest who is also the prince of the nation. And when Ezekiel talks about the prince and his sacrifices, he's talking about the high priest. The proof of that is that this prince offers a bull for his sin. And then in the law, it's only a high priest who offers a bull. So all of that's easily demonstrated. And for a couple of hundred years, they're going okay. And then they fall into sin. Now, there's nothing new about this, because after the Mosaic Covenant had gone for a few centuries, what happened? Eli happened. He was an Ithamar priest. Eli didn't restrain his sons. And as a result, God allowed the Philistines to take the Ark of the Covenant into captivity. And he killed those two boys. And Eli died. And that was kind of the end of that. There weren't any high priests, except for a little baby whose name was Ichabod. Well, he can't have a little baby be high priest. So when the Ark of the Covenant came back from captivity, they didn't put it back with the tabernacle, and for a hundred years, the system was not running, not until the temple was built. Well, the temple went along for a while until they sinned. Sinned at the time of the exile, Nebuchadnezzar tore the temple down, and then they didn't have any temple to worship in anymore. They had to worship out in the open sky like Gentiles. Then God restored the temple after the exile with Zechariah and Ezekiel and Nehemiah and Haggai, Ezra, all those guys. They restored the temple. And then, a couple of hundred years later, they defiled it again. They committed the same sin. And the sin that they committed is called the abomination of desolation. The abomination is a sin committed by the high priests that causes God to desolate the temple. It causes God to say, I am sick and tired of this. I'm leaving. I've had it. Now, the first time that happened was at the golden calf. The people committed this sin with the golden calf, and it says the Lord pitched his tent outside the camp of Israel. And Moses had to go way out there, and God said, I'm not going to go up with these people anymore. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses said, no, no, please come back into the camp. So God said, okay, I'll come back in. But they committed an abomination they cause God to desolate the camp and leave it empty. And when God leaves it empty, you can be sure that the Amalekites are going to come and run it over. Well, in the days of Eli, Eli's sons were stealing the sacrifices of God, and they were sleeping with the deaconesses who served at the tabernacle. 
And God said, I've had it. And so God packed up and left and went to the land of the Philistines. He let the Philistines take the ark, and that's where God went. And he left Israel empty. He left the tabernacle empty, and the Philistines came in and conquered everything. Well, in Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel sees what the Jews are doing that bring Nebuchadnezzar on. And he sees that the high priests and the leaders are worshiping idols in the temple. And he sees God's Shekinah glory just pack up. He sees God pack everything in his suitcases. And then the Shekinah glory gets up on top of the cherubim. And the chariot moves out of the temple and it moves over to the Mount of Olives. And God leaves. And guess what happens next? Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys everything. God has had it. They have committed the abominations. And God desolates the place. In the New Testament, this happens again. Jesus comes to the temple and he preaches and he preaches and they argue with him. They argue with him one argument after another. The Pharisees come and argue with him. The Herodians come and argue with him. The Sadducees argue with him. The lawyers argue with him. The scribes argue with him. Everybody argues with him. And so Jesus walks out. In Matthew 24, it says, they were leaving the temple. And Jesus says, you see this stuff? Not one stone is going to be left on another. I'm leaving. They committed the abomination and Jesus split from the temple. And he never came back. And the temple was destroyed. Now, the same thing happens in the days of the Maccabees. We've got this restoration temple set up. But, after a couple of centuries, the Jews commit the abomination that causes desolation. And it's predicted in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, and this is too much for us to take in detail, but it says, forces from the wicked one will arise and desecrate the sanctuary forces and do away with the regular sacrifices because they set up the abomination of desolation. Now, what happened? Well, there was a high priest in Israel whose name was Onias III. Onias III was a descendant of Zadok, and he was the true high priest in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was doing okay. But he had a younger relative whose name was Joshua. And this Joshua was a Hellenizer and he liked being a Greek. So he changed his name to Jason. And if I recall correctly, he went and had an operation to decircumcise himself. I really don't want to even think about that. But these guys would do that because they wanted to participate in the Greek games which were performed naked. And everybody would make fun of them because they were circumcised. They had a way of recapping. So he went to Antiochus III and said, I'm going to give you a bunch of money and I want to be high priest. And Antiochus said, okay. So they kicked Onias III out. That's the abomination. Caused God to leave. Onias III, the true high priest, had to leave Jerusalem and went somewhere else. Well, Jason has started things. And after a couple of years, there was another man in Jerusalem whose name was Menelaus, who, as I recall, was not a priest at all. And he said, you know, I think I'd like to be high priest (laughs) and have all the goodies. So he took a bunch of money to Antiochus IV and said, I'll give you money if you'll make me high priest. And Antiochus said, okay, you can be high priest. So he came in and drove Jason out. Well, after a couple of years of Menelaus' corrupt reign... Antiochus got real mad at the Jews, and so he came through there, and he made them stop doing sacrifices altogether, and he persecuted the people. And, of course, this was God's judgment on the people for their sin. And he stopped the sacrifices altogether and put a pig on the altar and all this stuff. But that was what God was doing to punish Israel. Well, there was a family of ordinary non-Zadokite priests. 
Remember, the Zadokites were just one family of the priests. There were other families. And this ordinary priest family had the family name of Hashmon. And they were out in one of the towns. And the Syrians under Antiochus IV came through and said, Offer sacrifice to the idols. And this old man named Mattathias Hashmon said, No, I won't do it. And he and his sons booked it off into the mountains and started running a guerrilla resistance. His most famous son was named Judas Hashmon, and he was so effective in stomping the heads of the Syrians that he got to be known as the Hammer. Judas the Hammer. In Hebrew, Judas Maccabee. You can hear the hammer sound in that word, Maccabee. Judas Maccabee. He was a Hashmon. And after a while, the guerrilla campaign of Judas Maccabee, Judas Hashmon, was effective. And the Syrians were driven out and Israel got relative independency and they were able to restore the temple and get the sacrifices going again. But they did not invite Onias III to come back and be high priest. Instead, the Hashmons set up one of their own relatives as a high priest who was not a Zadokite, which means that they did not respect the law as found in Ezekiel. It means something else very interesting. Since only a true high priest can offer the Day of Atonement, that means there was no Day of Atonement from this time forth. When Jesus comes, there hadn't been a true Day of Atonement in a couple of centuries. Yet these bad high priests, the Asmonians, as it is in Greek, Hashmon is Hebrew, Asmonian is the Greek equivalent. These Asmonian high priests were going through the motions of doing the Day of Atonement, but in the sacrificial system, there's only one thing that only the high priest can do. All the other priests can do the other stuff. But only the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And since they didn't have a true high priest, there wasn't a Zadokite. As far as God was concerned, there was no Day of Atonement. You'll notice in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't go to the Day of Atonement. He goes to Passover. He goes to Tabernacles. He doesn't ever participate in the Day of Atonement because as far as God was concerned, they weren't having one, which means their sins were piling up big time. Now, what happened? Well, the Maccabees and their followers turned the orientation of Israel away from being a missionary service nation into being a unique, special, holy nation that God loves more than he loves anybody else. Yeah, God loves the Gentiles, but he really loves us Jews. We're special. That's not the perspective of the Bible. The perspective of the Bible is God called the Jews because he loves the nations too. But the perspective of the Maccabees was zeal for the law. And the law came to be a symbol of national identity instead of a means of priestly service. Do you see the contrast here? They became amillennial, closed in upon themselves, and nationalistic. Instead of using their privilege for mission, they took their privileges to indicate that they were special in God's eyes and to despise the Gentiles. So the law became, the entire law, the Torah, became used as a boundary marker between Jew and Gentile, which it wasn't supposed to be. And as I said earlier, Peter says, I don't go into a Gentile house. Well, why not? The law was never intended to set up that kind of boundary between Jew and Gentile. The law was designed to impel the Jews out in missionary service, dynamically, postmillennially. But no, now they had changed it. And they were proud 
of being God's special people, which is crazy. It's like the Nazarite being proud of his vow. The Nazarite takes a vow to serve. If you're serving, how can you be proud? If Israel understood their calling to serve, they would have been humble. What does Jesus say? Those who must be great must be slave of all. What does Paul say? Let's each esteem the other better than himself. The Jews should have esteemed the nations better than themselves. God himself said, I didn't call you because you were bigger and stronger than the other nations. You were just a bunch of riffraff when I called you. The Jews should have esteemed the others better than themselves, but they didn't. And the three aspects of the law that they started to magnify were those aspects of the law that tended to be different from what the Gentiles could do. And that was circumcision, food laws, and Sabbaths. Now, when you consider the New Testament, what are the issues that Paul is constantly dealing with? Circumcision, food laws, and festival Sabbaths. That is what they magnified. And the Jews started adding all kinds of extra rules to these things. You've got to wash the outside of the pot. You can't have meat and milk at the same meal. Something the Bible doesn't teach. All these rules. All kinds of rules added to the Sabbath. You know, you can only walk 100 yards on the Sabbath or whatever all these things were. The Bible doesn't teach that stuff. They multiplied these things in order to multiply the differences between them and the Gentiles. Instead of seeing the law as their privilege to serve, they saw it as a privilege that made them better than others. So what happens when Jesus comes? When Jesus condemns the Jews and the Pharisees, does he condemn them for teaching salvation by works? No. You see, if we go through Romans and say Romans is concerned with salvation by works and earning your way to heaven, the funny thing about that interpretation is there's nothing in the rest of the Bible about that. That's not what Jesus is concerned about. Romans certainly applies to the evil Roman Catholic doctrine of the Middle Ages that said you can earn your way to heaven, essentially. You know, merit theology. Romans applies to that. Okay? I'm not taking anything away from Luther and Calvin. They rightly applied Romans to their situation. But what we're interested in here is not a historical question of how Romans was used at the time of the Reformation. What we want to know is what did Romans mean when it was written? Because that will enable us to apply it to more situations than just Romans. For instance, we can apply it to us. God gives us his word, and what do we do? Do we take it out, mission to the world? No, we say, well, we're going to add some new rules. Christians don't smoke. Christians don't drink. Christians don't dance. Christians don't have TVs in their homes. Christians don't use birth control. Christians blah, 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 blah. Stuff the Bible doesn't say, and it makes us better than other people. And now we've all isolated ourselves from all those other people. We don't talk to them anymore because they're so corrupt. And that's exactly the same problem. It's a fundamentalist problem, and the fundamentalist problem is the same as a Pharisee problem. Listen to what Jesus does condemn the Jews and the Pharisees for. Jesus says, and listen to these condemnations, because this is a background for what Paul is dealing with in Romans. Matthew 23. There are eight woes in Matthew 23. They correspond to the eight Beatitudes in Matthew 5. You can just lay out those eight Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and these eight woes in Matthew 23, and they line up. So you can do that Bible study sometime, and you'll see how it works out and how Matthew is put together, beginning with blessing and ending with cursing. Chapter 23, verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. You don't enter in yourselves. You don't allow those who are entering to go in. In other words, the first thing he says to them is, you've abandoned the whole missionary purpose that I called you to in the first place. 
The whole purpose of Israel was to be a missionary nation. And the first condemnation Jesus makes is that they have abandoned the missionary calling. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you receive greater condemnation. Well, that's what Paul said. You know, you who claim to be Jews, do you rob temples? Do you steal from other people? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you do travel about land and sea to make one convert. When he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's because these Jewish evangelists, they would go out and they would persuade some Gentile to accept the Lord, and then they would tell him he had to become a Jew. Well, that's not the law. If Israel ministered to the nations, the nations were not supposed to get circumcised and become Jews. Israel was a closed army. The proof of that is that all the land in Israel was already divided up into all these family plots. So if somebody converted in, where would they live? They weren't supposed to circumcise everybody. They were supposed to minister to the uncircumcised because Abraham is the father both of circumcised and of uncircumcised. And so when Jonah went to Assyria and to Nineveh and all those people were converted, he didn't circumcise them. They just became God-fearing Gentiles. The scribes and Pharisees were saying, well, you don't really count unless you get circumcised and become a Jew. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing, but who swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold of the temple or what sanctified the gold? And you say, whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, what is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, he who swears, swears by both the altar and everything on it. He who swears by the temple, swears both by the temple. And he who dwells in it, and he who swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and him who sits on it. What's he condemning here? He's condemning people who go into the Torah and try to use it to figure out all kinds of itty-bitty distinctions that the Bible doesn't give. We've talked among ourselves around here about, okay, how do you organize the elders and deacons in the church? Should we have... Ruling elders and teaching elders and ruling deacons and teaching deacons and subdeacons and archdeacons and sub-elders and arch-elders and bishops. Should we have bishops? Should we just have a presbytery? All these questions. Okay, where does the power of the church reside? With the officers or with the people or both? Where does the Bible answer those questions? Well, it really doesn't. The Bible just says, have the old guys run the church. Now, the reason is that the church is going to exist in a variety of different circumstances in history. And so as long as you have the old guys running the church, you have some flexibility in terms of setting it up. That doesn't mean we ought not to wrestle with the issue, because what will work best for us is a legitimate question. And what other indications might the Bible have to say to us is a legitimate question. But you can push this stuff too far. And we have Episcopalians who say that the only proper church government is Episcopal. We have Presbyterians who say the only way to do church government is Presbyterian, and if you don't do it that way, you're in sin. That goes too far because that is not in the Bible. What the Bible says is the old guys ought to run the church, and that's it. Old guys, not old women. Matthew 23:23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected weightier... See, they were Mexicans back then, they used cumin. And neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Well, this is the tendency when you start viewing the Scriptures as an amillennial boundary to keep you protected from the world. You wind up reacting. You know, there's so much divorce in our society, we're going to say now that divorce is always wrong. 
There is so much sexual profligacy, and we hear so much about prophylactics on television that we're going to say all birth control is wrong. There's so much drunkenness, we're going to say that all drinking is wrong. We wind up reacting. We wind up with all kinds of minute laws dealing with things that the Bible doesn't address. What the Bible really teaches is if you'll keep the laws that God gave, the other things will fall out on themselves. If you keep the things that God says to do, if you tithe 10% of your income to the church, if you were submissive to church officers, if you do the things the Bible says to do, which aren't that many, the other questions will settle themselves out when your consciousness is changed. You don't have to have a million little laws for everything. But these guys did. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, that the outside of it may become clean also. Well, he goes on. But the whole point of it is they have taken the law and they have perverted it into a means of national pride instead of national service. So, Paul's purpose is to restore the law to its proper place. He's arguing against this nationalistic perversion of the law, and he wants to restore the law to its original proper place so that he can say Christians follow the law because they are post-millennial and mission-oriented, and they are not viewing history as closed. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.